Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. A million miles away from the Earth, the James Webb Space Telescope, an engineering marvel 25 years in the making, has begun to image the universe. From nearby exoplanets to the edges of the universe and everywhere in between, astronomy is about to leap forward. So far, we've seen a nursery for stars, a deep view of hundreds of galaxies from across space and time, and a measurement of the atmosphere of a planet 1,150 light years away. But this is just the beginning. There will be more images and more discoveries. We'll talk to the scientists who helped bring the telescope to life about what we've seen and what to expect next. That's all coming up. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Gotta forgive me, but I have to make this intro a little personal. 27 years ago, when NASA released an image that became known as the Pillars of Creation, I was just completely taken in. That picture, along with the rest of the images that Hubble captured, which you could download and stare at inch by inch, made me into a space nerd. Years later, in 2009, I wrote my first story about Hubble's successor, the James Webb Space Telescope. It was a marvel of unprecedented design honeycomb mirror orbiting the sun, not the earth, a million miles away, and collecting infrared light to plumb the depths of time and the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars. Humans do many stupid and destructive things, but this, this was something we built, and we did it just to know things about this universe we live in. Even celestial things get terrestrial delays, though, so it took many more years than anticipated and a lot more dollars. Many people thought the telescope would never launch. When it finally did, for French Guiana last December, it still had to pass a final nerve-wracking test, unfurling and powering on piece by piece by piece. And now this week, after 25 years of toil, the scientists, engineers, technicians, and others who worked on the James Webb have finally revealed the telescope's first images. 
They were as dazzling as anticipated, maybe even more so. And one of them showed the Carina Nebula, a dusty scene of starbirth reminiscent of, but so much more detailed than that Hubble view of the pillars of creation that sucked me in so many years ago. And I'm sure out across the entire globe, a new set of space nerds burst into existence thanks to the work of 20,000 people working through all the change that the 21st century has brought. We have two of those scientists here with us today and a journalist who's covered the tribulations and now triumph of the Space Telescope. First, Marina Corin. She's a staff writer with The Atlantic who covers space. Thanks for joining us, Marina. Thanks for having me. Hi, Alexis. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Uh, we're also joined by Tom Green, an astrophysicist at the Space Science and Astrobiology Division of NASA Ames Research Center here in the Bay Area. Dr. Green worked on the NIRCAM and MIRI instruments of the James Webb. Thanks for joining us, Tom Green. Thank you, Alexis. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah. And finally, we have Marsha Riki, Regents Professor of Astronomy and Astronomer at the Stewart Observatory at the University of Arizona, Principal Investigator on James Webb Telescope. Thanks for coming back to join us again, Marsha Riki. Thanks for having me, and I'm very pleased to be here to share these beautiful pictures. Oh, man, we're so happy to have you. I mean, the first time you were on the show, when we were kind of previewing what was going to happen, you said that if it didn't work out, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing perhaps, that if it didn't work out, uh, you would jump out a window. But now I assume everything is nominal. Everything's working well. Um, how are you feeling now? I'm feeling fantastic, particularly because everything's working better than nominal. Huh. The telescope alignment is just fantastic, and it's better than we had hoped. Wow. How about you, Tom? How are you feeling? I'm ecstatic as well. Uh, there are a lot of things that could have gone wrong. Um, there are a lot of plans if they did, and everything went right. You know, we had a plan A, B, C, and uh, plan A worked, and uh, worked better than what we thought, as Marcia said. Just so people kind of understand the difficulty of this final step, um, I think it was on Nova yesterday where they said there were 340 individual single points of failure where something could have gone wrong. Uh, Tom, is that roughly right? Um, and how is it that everything went so according to plan? Yeah, that is the right number. And uh, the reason why it's so big is because this telescope had to fold up to fit into its rocket and the mirror itself had to unfold, other mirrors had to unfold, the, uh, uh, lots of things had to happen, it had to have this huge sunshade. And the reason why it all worked is because we really tested it a lot. We, uh, people may be familiar, there was a problem with the Hubble after it launched, mm -hmm. its uh, optics weren't as good as uh, they could have been. And we didn't want to make that mistake with Webb. Yeah. I have to say I had one of the dorkiest possible reactions to the new images, which was going to download them and realizing they were like 150 megabytes. <laughs> and you go like, that's a big, big image. Uh, Marsha Riki, I wanted to, before we go to Marina for her reaction, uh, Marsha, how do you even look at these images? Like, do you have like a 60-inch screen that you pull up so that you can actually see everything? I wish I had a 60 inch screen. So I have a smaller screen and I look at the images um, a chunk at a time. And, you know, NearCam is a 40 megapixel camera, which is why the files are so big. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Marina, so we have six in total, I think, that have been released. Obviously, the first of many, many, many to come. You wrote that when you first saw the images, you kind of had a strange pang of indignation. Uh, talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. When we saw the picture of the Carina Nebula, I mean, I had seen Hubble's view of, of that cosmic environment before. And Hubble can see a tiny bit in infrared, whereas James Webb, like it, infrared is its jam, right? So this was, I knew this was going to be a beautiful picture, but I didn't expect to see so much texture and richness and you know the way we talk about space a lot of the time you know we call it empty we call it a void we call it an expanse and this picture was the exact opposite of that so mm -hmm. I felt a little bit lied to it was a very irrational feeling <laughs> in the moment I felt that you know this was out here the whole time and we didn't know and um as Jane Rigby an astrophysicist at NASA said when I asked her about this she said yeah it's been out there we just had to build a telescope and go see it oh, yeah um Marshariki, I want to talk about how these images are captured. I mean, we went, we, people may understand this and may not, but tell us about sort of capturing in the infrared and then creating something that human eyes can perceive. Okay, well, near cam is basically a lot like the camera in a cell phone so that the light comes in, gets converted to electrons, gets sent to a memory card. And then in space, that memory card gets dumped and sent down to the ground by radio waves. So it's like your cell phone takes a picture, goes to the memory card, and then you can send it over the cell phone waves to a friend. And once the images get to the ground, there has to be some processing to remove some of the artifacts like cosmic ray hits and things that we can't control. And then because our eyes can't see infrared, we have to take the images and assign colors to the different infrared wavelengths to highlight what we might want to see or make the image as beautiful as we like. Um, and so that in a sense, these are false color images, but, but false is a little bit false in the sense that our eyes couldn't see these wavelengths anyway. And you choose those colors basically mapping to how we might, like longer wavelengths get a reddish tone as it works in our uh, in the visible light spectrum and, and shorter wavelengths get a, a bluer tone, right? Yeah, that's, that's how it's been done because that's kind of more intuitive for how mm -hmm. people yeah. absorb an image. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I used to, when I wrote a lot about space, I used to kind of think of these images as a little bit fake. But now I see it totally differently. I feel it, it's like an extended kind of vision. Instead of sort of puny human biological circuitry, this is sort of how a civilization sees the universe. You need all these wavelengths because there's different things uh, happening in each of them. And Tom Green, I wanted to ask you about in the other infrared instrument, MIRI, uh, the one that Marsha didn't lead the, the creation of. How come we needed two of them? Or what, what was the point of adding another infrared instrument? Well, to basically to see more. So uh, one of the things this telescope was built to do was to study the early universe. And uh, the universe is expanding, as uh, you know, we've found out with a lot of evidence. And it's expanding so fast that uh, the light that's emitted in the early universe gets shifted to very red wavelengths and uh, by the Doppler effect, which is the same effect we hear when a train goes by the, the train track, or Caltrain or something. And uh, it gets shifted so much by like a factor of 10 that uh, uh, visible light 
gets shifted even beyond uh, what NIRCAM can see into longer infrared wavelengths. Um, the other thing that the infrared does, the farther infrared, is that it really allows you to see through dust. And uh, NERCAM's quite good at that, but longer wavelengths allow you to see through more dust. And um, there are a lot of molecules that also uh, emit at longer wavelengths in uh, uh, the atmospheres of planets and also uh, around young stars. That's so interesting. Kind of like AM tra travels further than FM because it's like sort of longer wavelengths and able to pass through more things. Um, we're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope and the spectacular images that it has taken of galaxies that are light years away, many, 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 many light years away from Earth. We're joined by Tom Green, an astrophysicist at NASA Ames, who worked on the NIRCAM and MIRI instruments on the James Webb Space Telescope. Marina Corin, staff writer for The Atlantic who writes about space, and Marsha Riki, Regents Professor of Astronomy and an astronomer at the Stewart Observatory at the University of Arizona and the principal investigator on the James Webb Space Telescope. We'd love to hear from you. What was your reaction to the images from the James Webb? And what are your questions about sort of what you've seen in those images and what you hope to see going forward? Our number is 866 733 6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions or your reactions to forum at kqed.org. Marshariki, before we go to the break, I need to ask you, which of the images from your instrument is your favorite so far? The Carina image is my favorite, even though my personal science is uh, related to SMAC's deep image but Carina really, really did it for me. And is that because just the, the sheer beauty of the image and it's what it represents? It's because of the sheer beauty. I just, I was stunned like Marina by all the detail and texture and so on. And I, I just had never expected to see that kind of an image. Yeah. Tom Green, how about you? Sorry, it's a tough choice. I must say the deep field image is just amazing to me because we actually see gravity bending the light from the distant galaxies. Uh, yeah. uh, however, uh, one, the one that's closest to my work is the uh, planet. Mm -hmm. That's great. We are going to talk more about gravitational lensing when we get back. We're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope and the spectacular images that it's producing. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Shining star for you to see what your life can truly be. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. We're joined by Marsha Riki, who's a principal investigator on the James Webb, Tom Green, an astrophysicist uh, here in the Bay Area at NASA Ames, uh, who worked on the NIRCAM and NIRI instruments of the James Webb Telescope, and Marina Corin, a staff writer for The Atlantic who covers space. I wanted to, Marina, ask you, I wanted to get into sort of how this launch, these images, almost didn't happen. Um, You know, this project's been a long time in the making, but it's had some difficulties through its time, you know, turning from idea to NASA project with ESA and other countries to being something that can actually show us the universe. That's right. This telescope has been, you know, years in the making, you know, the very first time that uh, astronomers started talking about doing this type of super large infrared telescope um, was in around 1988, you know, two years before Hubble even launched, like people were excited to, you know, they were excited for Hubble, which was going to observe the universe in mostly visible and ultraviolet light, but they were already thinking about the next big thing. And the next big thing is a really, really big thing, right? It's it's, (laughs) it's extremely technically complex. um, And, you know, uh, there were many times where this project fell behind schedule and went over budget. You know, the total price tag is around $10 billion, which I think if you told someone in 1988, that's what this product was going to cost, they wouldn't have believed you. So there are a lot of people that I think don't believe that um, James Webb or JWST, as some call it, is actually in space. And I think it's important to, uh, you know, these, these pictures are beautiful. We're about to get 20 more years of these pictures and scientific discoveries. But I think it's also important to remember um, what it took to get to this point and how NASA and other space agencies can um, do things differently in the future, you know, on their next big space telescope. What are some lessons that they can take away from this process and apply it um, for the next big missions? Yeah. You know, Marsha, over the long sweep, we're at the high point here. Well, maybe not the high point, but we're at we're we're nearing a high point. Um, what was the low point for you? Was it maybe 2011 when House Appropriations Committee recommended canceling the project? That was a pretty low point because we were very afraid that even though we were more than 10 years into the actual development, that we might just be told go home. Mm-hmm. And in the case of NearCam, we already had built a number of parts. And so canceling, there was going to be not just people's time wasted, but actual hardware was was starting to come together. And boy, we were we were in the dumps for a while. Yeah. Can you imagine what your life would have been like if that had happened? Uh, well, I probably would have gone back to being mostly a ground-based astronomer who occasionally used Hubble. Mm-hmm. And it would have been quite different. Yeah, yeah. Tom, you lived through some of this too. I mean, how did you keep focused and, and not lose hope that this was going to happen? It was just too well, too big to fail is an overused term, right? But scientifically, I think that was true. Uh, another low point for me that I couldn't believe was that uh, NASA actually tried to cancel the mid-infrared instrument. I think it was around 2003 or 2004. I was in the room and that was announced. But you know, ultimately, people realized that there was just too much potential uh, in this. And uh, I think that's what really carried it. Yeah. Let's bring in our first caller before we talk some more about what we're seeing in these images. Mike in Santa Clara, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Uh, uh, great to be on and great to be on this topic. And congratulations to all of our friends at NASA. 
um, just incredible stuff. So you asked about the reaction, and I just reminded me of when I was in eighth grade or seventh grade biology, and I looked through a microscope for the first time, and I was just amazed at this whole world that existed, like on the, you know, skin on your body or in a, you know, pond water, and when I first saw the images come out over the last few days, I just thought to myself, you know, we knew that those galaxies and and all of that stuff was out there, but all of a sudden it became, you know, 100x more clear. And I, I, I don't know. I just felt like space got so much bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's such a good uh, point. You know, I, Tom Green, I want to take this to you. I mean, in part, there's this, we could maybe the gravitational lensing is where I want to take this because I feel like the the thing that becomes so clear in looking at these images is just how far away and and how differently we're seeing the the universe. So maybe talk a little bit about the deep field and what we see now that we didn't when the Hubble was taking a a, a similar kind of field shot. Yeah. So. Uh... I'm all, I'm interested in optics, you know, sort of like uh, the caller, like Mike uh, Anderson looking through uh, microscopes. Uh, it's been telescopes for me, and it just bends my mind to see how gravity can bend light in this deep field image. So this is uh, looking outside of the Milky Way. It's looking at a cluster of galaxies that's far away. It's about 5 billion light years away, and it's a massive cluster. And what that cluster is doing is it's uh, amplifying the light of distant galaxies behind it. And that is through this uh, gravitational effect that I'm Einstein predicted. It was first, I think, verified in a solar eclipse. The uh, uh, And you see the result of that are all these really weird uh, stretch shapes, and those are the background galaxies. And so what uh, uh, this does, not only does it show us the galaxies, but uh, uh, another thing that was done with this image is uh, if you look on the, the materials, it'll tell you that, uh, it really leveraged the power of the web because uh, people looked at these stretched images, they found the ones that were sort of the reddest that uh, looked like the oldest. And then they used another instrument and uh, uh, split up the light in these to figure out how what elements there were in there at this uh, at this age and how old they were. So Hubble could take the pictures, but it couldn't really dice up the light like that to figure out what these background objects are made of. Uh, Marsha, we have a question from a listener, Lauren. She says, could you explain for the lay unknowledgeable person what in essence the images are showing? And let's stay with this deep field uh, image. She said, I'm confused when I read about the light being millions of years old. Maybe I have that wrong, but I would love to hear more about that aspect. Uh, Lauren, this is one of the things that is indeed confusing and hard to get your mind around. So light does not travel infinitely fast. It travels at 186,000 miles per second, which means that even some what we would call nearby galaxies, the light has taken a long time to travel to us. The nearby galaxy in Andromeda that you can see if you go to a dark site, that light has been traveling to us for 2 million years. When you look at this deep image that Webb has taken, there are some objects in there that are so far away that the light has taken 13 billion years to travel to us. That means that we're seeing that object as it was 13 billion years ago, 
And because the universe is only 13.8 billion years old, we're seeing that object when it was, say, 800 million years old. And so in a sense, a telescope can become a time machine. The further away you look, the more you're looking back into time because it takes light so long to reach us from that distant object. And so that's how this business of studying uh, young galaxies comes about. The only way you can do that, though, is an extremely sensitive instrument, right, that can detect that really, really faint light, right? That's right. That's why um, Webb was built to be as big as it is, and it's also why it's built to work in the infrared, because as Tom mentioned earlier, the expansion of the universe shifts the light to redder and redder wavelengths, so you need a big telescope and you need to detect faint things, and you need a telescope that works in the infrared to detect the shifted light. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I have heard you say is that when you take images of things where you're not even looking for galaxies, that galaxies are, quote, photobombing your other images. Can you talk about why that's happening now, but it didn't happen uh, with, with Hubble, or maybe it did, and I just didn't know about it? It didn't happen so much with Hubble, partly because Hubble's not as sensitive, but I think this is where Webb being an infrared telescope comes to the fore. We noticed as we were taking test imagery to align the optics and things that there were always these galaxies in the background, and it's because of these longer wavelengths, it's much easier to detect galaxies. So if you go back um, and look at the, some of the images that were released in March and April showing the beautiful, fully aligned bright star in the center of the image, and then you look around the outer edges, you'll see there are lots of galaxies even in that image, and it's just because we're looking at longer wavelengths where galaxies are brighter. Yeah. Let's bring in another caller, uh, Bruce in Piedmont. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Um, so the Hubble, I'm sorry, the, the Webb telescope has taken images of something that was 13 billion light years away. But 13 billion years ago, the universe was much smaller because that's closer to the time of the Big Bang, which you said was mm -hmm. 100 million years beyond that. So when the universe was much smaller, the light would have gone from there to here in a much shorter time. So how could it, how could it take 13 billion years for light to travel to us when mm -hmm. it was much smaller back then? Um, the only explanation would be if galaxies were moving away from each other at close to the speed of light, and that is not happening. So how's the contradiction resolved? Well, Tom Green, this is why we have an astrophysicist on the show. <laughs> Welcome. To... Thank you for that, Bruce. Well, it turns out the galaxies are moving away from each other very quickly, and that the universe is expanding very quickly. So, uh, you know, those two things are consistent with each other. Yeah. Um, we also have a uh, another caller, our Linda in Oakland. Welcome. Hi. Um, you've got me thinking, and I'm confused now. You mm -hmm. say that our universe is 13 point something billion years old. Where did it come from? The uh, Something doesn't come from nothing, so to speak. Um, how does it self-generate? 
and the other thing is, is this universe specific only to us, or are there other universes out there? When you think of the universe... Oh, sorry about that, Arlinda. Um, I'll see if I can bring uh, Arlinda back. But let's take the first question first. Tom Green, again, your department in astrophysics, perhaps, or, or Marsha, if you want to take it. Okay, so uh, just, that, that was a big question. Where did the universe come from, <laughs> and are there other universes? Uh, we have pretty limited empirical knowledge of that. You know, we actually, uh, so in the 1950s, people uh, uh, made observational discoveries and uh, basically found evidence of the Big Bang. And uh, it's actually, uh, there's a remnant Big Bang. You can look in any direction of the sky. There's this very cold radiation that's left over from the hot universe when it uh, uh, formed and uh, then expanded and, and cooled. And uh, we can't see pack, past that to uh, know whether there are other universes, whether this uh, is not the first Big Bang. There are theories about it. There are physics theories. And uh, uh, they haven't really been validated yet. There's a string theory that uh, predicts uh, you know, other universes, but uh, we haven't had a lot of observational validation of uh, anything besides our own. Yeah. Um, let's ask about one of the dangers. I mean, this, uh, telescope is sitting very far away from us. We can't run missions to it as we could, um, with Hubble. And we know that one of the mirrors was hit by a micrometeor. I think it's actually happened a few times now. Um, Marsha, are you worried about the impact, uh, that will have on the performance of the telescope? Not terribly worried, partly because the pr basic performance of the telescope um, was more than twice as good as we could have hoped. And in fact, if we had only met the requirements, um, the pre-launch engineering requirements, we would not have noticed this micrometeorite hit. But because the telescope is working so well, we can distinguish very small changes in the state of the telescope. And because the telescope mirror segments are adjustable, we can actually adjust them to compensate for this hit. And as best we know, we're not going to get very many hits this big. These small ones that have been happening that don't really cause much change, those were predicted and the rate is about what we expected. And we may somehow have just been unlucky with this one. We're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope and the spectacular images it has taken of galaxies that are very, very far away from Earth, as well as nebula and other celestial phenomena. We're joined by Marina Korn, staff writer for The Atlantic, who writes about space. Tom Green, astrophysicist in the Space Science and Astrobiology Division at NASA Ames here in the Bay Area, worked on couple of instruments on the James Webb Telescope, and Marsha Riki, who you just heard, the Regents Professor of Astronomy and an astronomer at the Stewart Observatory at the University of Arizona. She's Principal Investigator on the James Webb Space Telescope. We want to hear from you. What are your questions about what you've seen so far? And how about this one? What are you hoping that the James Webb Space Telescope will find? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. 6786 Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Tom Green, I want to ask you about uh, exoplanets. 
Um, you're in the Space Science and Astrobiology Division at NASA Ames. Are your colleagues there pretty excited about this instrument and this ability, new abilities to, to look at exoplanets? We're beyond excited. Uh, we've had a big exoplanet history at Ames. We uh, uh, conceived of the Kepler mission, which discovered, I think, still about over half of the known exoplanets. We're going to be using the same technique to characterize uh, exoplanets. A number of us have been uh, working on this uh, theoretically, and uh, I've been planning observations for quite a while. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. So Hubble has looked at the atmospheres of about 70 exoplanets in its uh, entire career. And uh, we'll see that many into the first year of Webb. And, and because Webb goes out so much more in the infrared, we'll be able to see uh, many more molecules, more than just the water that Hubble sees. Uh, we'll be able to see carbon molecules, the uh, uh, methane, uh, carbon monoxide that are uh, important for life. Um, Marina, as we uh, go into this break, you actually were there when the James Webb was launched into space. Can you just tell us a little bit about it as we, uh, as we head out? I was, and boy, the anxiety was thicker than the humidity, <laughs> which is saying quite a lot for, you know, tropical climate. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the spaceport is in French Guiana, on the coast of South America, super remote place. And so, you know, if you wanted to get there, um, you had to fly actually through, from the U.S., you had to fly through France and then down to South America. So um, a lot of, you know, NASA people made that trip, people from other space agencies, and um, everyone was really nervous. You know, they all wore the same grave expression because like everyone on, the, on the, this uh, show has said so far, no one could predict that this thing was going to work. 344 single point failures, the most complicated spacecraft uh, deployment in history. And, um, you know, I talked to one of the lead engineers who was in charge of deploying Webb. Uh, he's the type of guy who brings physics and math textbooks to vacation. Um, so I think people, you know, trusted him and trusted the team. Um, and they felt good about this mission. They, you know, tested the crap out of it at this point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the launch was only one hard part and people just wanted to get through that and get to all the other hard parts. And uh, it's very exciting for everyone involved that we've now um, made it. We've gotten there. Yeah, I am. I'm so jealous. I've never actually seen a rocket launch, and I have always wanted to see one. And this was one that definitely, if I got the chance, um, I would have. Uh, I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We are talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, what it's seen so far, and what it could tell us about the universe. Stay tuned for more after the break. So I can't look at the stars. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the James Webb Space Telescope and the spectacular images it has taken of galaxies and nebula. I'm joined by Marina Corrin, staff writer for The Atlantic, who writes about space. Tom Green, an astrophysicist at NASA Ames, who worked on two instruments on the James Webb. And Marsha Riki, the principal investigator on the James Webb. Let's bring in Nelson in San Francisco. Welcome, Nelson. Good morning, Watched the NOVA program last night, blown away, and my multiple reactions are visceral, intellectual, almost like poetic, reminding me of William Blake's classic line of to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower. So my science question is, um, given that he was just focusing on that narrow band of sky, literally a point in the sky, and I think metaphorically it's like a grain of sand, and it was showing thousands of galaxies— Will there be a new calculation of galaxies, stars, and I guess exoplanets based on just this thing? Or has it been already sort of factored in that we haven't just seen these uh, objects in the sky? Uh, Marsha Riki? I think we're going to revise our numbers of objects because I think one thing that's going to become very obvious is that there are many more galaxies that are very red, hidden by dust surrounding them that were not counted before. And if you look at these deep images, you see a lot of little red blobs. And that's not just because of the redshift, but it's because those galaxies may actually be intrinsically red. So I think we will be revising our numbers. Uh, Marsha, another listener, David, writes in, how is it possible that the telescope can see images through millions of miles that I would assume are not dust-free? Don't particles obscure a great deal of the light energy? The particles certainly obscure some, but those the particles, because of their size, obscure short wavelengths much more than long wavelengths. And so that's one of the other big advantages of observing in the infrared. It's kind of like when you look at the setting sun, it looks very red, whereas in midday, it looks much yellower. And that's because at sunset, the light is coming through more of the Earth's atmosphere with its dust. But red gets through and blue doesn't as well. So infrared is very good this way. Um, Marina Corin got a couple of comments and, uh, and questions coming in from listeners. Pete writes, love the program, the incredible work of the team. I'd heard something about James Webb himself being a homophobe slash racist in some effort to rename the telescope. Is that true? Lisa writes, who is James Webb? Uh, can you answer that for us? Yes. Uh, so James Webb is a former NASA administrator, and he is credited with really like, pushing the Apollo program through, right? And really... Um, making it happen in the in the 1950s. Um, he was also before that uh, an administrator at the sec- at the State Department. And um, you know, 
in the last several years, it's come to light that uh, Webb was in charge during a time of really intense uh, discrimination against LGBTQ government employees. Um, for example, in 1963, there was a NASA employee who was fired, um, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see, but fired on suspicion of, you know, of his homosexuality, right? And so uh, NASA chose the name James Webb in 2002, and it was a very unilateral decision, which was made at the time by then NASA Administrator Sean O'Keefe. And it really went against, you know, traditional naming rules at NASA. Usually such big telescopes and missions are named after um, scientists, you know, or in the case of Mars rovers are named after adjectives that like to, you know, would like to use to describe the best of us, curiosity, spirit, uh, spirit opportunity. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of astronomers out there who are not satisfied with this name because of these claims. And NASA has uh, looked into these claims about James Webb and conducted its own investigation. Um, it's not yet complete, but also they haven't put out a written report about what they're thinking. Uh, NASA's current stance is that they're not going to change the name. They're refusing to do that, but they also haven't really explained. You know, some people feel that NASA hasn't given its rationale for keeping the name in a very satisfying way. So um, the controversy continues, you know, but yeah. for now, um, it, it'll be called the James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah. Marsha, where did you land on this issue? You know, I, I haven't looked at the historical records, so I'm not really qualified to comment on that. But I would want to add one thing to what Marina said. The original reason for picking Webb as the name was that when Webb was the administrator, he was the one that insisted on having a science component to the Apollo program. So collecting the moon rocks, having the astronauts trained in geology and things all trace back to his insistence on NASA being also a science um, agency. And so I think that is an important component that sometimes gets forgotten here. But as I say, I, I can't comment on the historical record. I can comment on one other thing. Marina said it was a unilateral decision. Our European and Canadian colleagues read about the renaming in newspapers. Mm -hmm. That really was not a good way to do things. They must things. have loved that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They would prefer to have been involved, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned the collaboration between different uh, countries. And I, I wonder what working on a project like this, I mean, there's, right, there's a dozen other countries involved in multiple space agencies and universities and thousands of scientists. Do you think you've learned something about like just humanity itself working on a project that required such incredible coordination? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that is really remarkable about this project. We have 14 countries, many different states across the U.S., and people have from very diverse backgrounds have come together to create and make something happen. And as, as Tom mentioned, the MIRI instrument would never have happened if people hadn't come together. I think that's one of the marvelous aspects of WEP. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's bring in, we've got a lot of cosmology questions here. We have a lot of budding cosmologists. Clearly, the deep uh, field image brings out something and people thinking... Uh, about this universe. Uh, Dorit in Oakland, welcome. Yes, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can, go ahead. Okay, cool. 
Um, so I understand the concept of seeing back in time in terms of the, the distances. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's just say Galaxy X. Uh, light is coming from 13 billion years ago. Well, Galaxy X 5 billion years ago was somewhere totally different. So my question is, do, is it possible to see multiple images through, through time of the different formations? Uh, Marsha? No, we only see them once unless they happen to be gravitationally lensed where we might get multiple images. But of a just a single isolated galaxy out in space, we only see the, the, the one image. And even though it moves, um, and we'll see as time goes by, we'll see it at different places. But at any one time, we only see it at one place. Yep. Good question. Um, a listener tweets, absolutely spectacular in reaction to the images. With so many uh, galaxies out there, although we're mostly, I think, looking within the Milky Way in this case, is it fair to say there's a high statistical probability that the telescope will eventually spot a planet with a very Earth-like environment and perhaps life? Or am I dealing in hypotheticals? And Marsha or Tom, whoever wants to take that one. Well, I can jump into that one. Well, we're certainly looking. We'll see if we spot one. Uh, there are a few uh, planets about the size of Earth that are favorable to observe with Webb. Uh, there's this one system you may have heard about, uh, this TRAPPIST-1 system. It's got about seven planets about the size of Earth. It's a very different star than the sun. It might have atmospheres. Uh, so we're looking. And in fact, I think uh, one of the TRAPPIST observations is going to be this week. We're going to be doing a lot more in the fall. And uh, the first question is, you know, is is there any kind of atmosphere at all? And then does it have uh, uh, chemicals in the atmosphere that are similar to the ones on Earth? And we're looking. I mean, what for you is like you're going to see a spectrograph, right, where light is broken up into different wavelengths that sort of reflect the different uh, elements that are that are in that light. Um, is there going to be one of those where you see it and you go like there's life there? Well, there's a lot of uh, potential false positives for life. So I think it's going to, we can see things that could perhaps be consistent with life, but uh, it's going to take a lot of winnowing and uh, further observations to be at all conclusive, I think. Well, let me ask you this way. If you, we can, I'm sure, imagine what Earth's version of that would be, right? We can imagine like what our, our spectra would be. Um, if you saw one that looked just like Earth and was in the habitable zone around another star, like would that be where NASA would say, this is probably a planet with life? Maybe, but uh, for example, the one thing that distinguishes Earth is the presence of oxygen. Oxygen shouldn't be in our atmosphere just from uh, uh, the temperature of Earth and the chemistry. So, uh, you know, it's produced by plants and photosynthesis. There are other ways to produce oxygen. Uh, for example, uh, boiling water, like oceans, you know, can produce uh, can produce oxygen. So, you uh, uh, it's you you do have to like. Uh, uh, put, I, I think that there's been a saying sort of like extraordinary claims require extraordinary <laughs> evidence. So this would be mm-hmm. looked at pretty hard. But do you think that, uh, sorry, I know I'm following up on this. I've been wanting, I've been wanting this for so long. I'm sorry, Tom. Um, do you think that, that the Webb Space Telescope will get us that extraordinary evidence? Like, would we be able to say, yes, there is life on this planet 
based on what we'll be able to see over the lifetime of the James Webb? It's going to be really hard for Webb to do that because uh, to study a planet, uh, a planet like Earth is very, very faint compared to its star and very nearby. It's we have to use this indir more indirect technique with Webb. It's uh, this transit technique like we use with Kepler to discover planets. And uh, it's just not as sensitive to study in detail uh, what's in the atmospheres of really small planets. Uh, we do have plans for a future telescope, maybe to launch in the 2040s, that really would be capable of uh, seeing uh, biomarkers and making a more definitive uh, assessment of whether life exists on other planets. Um, Marsha, back to you. I want to know what you think would be the most exciting discovery. And you can't tell me the thing we don't know yet. I know that that is, uh, is going to be very exciting. But of the things you can imagine and could describe now, what would be the most exciting thing to like pull up an image on your computer and say, oh, man, that? Uh, it's sort of a tie. I would really like to find the first galaxy that came together after the Big Bang. That's one big one. The other is... That's a solid choice. <laughs> That's a, a pretty solid choice. I also would be very intrigued to find a, a, a genuinely Earth-like planet with an atmosphere that looks like ours. I mean, these two goals kind of tie in my mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Marina, how about you? Well, I'm overwhelmed at the fact that I'm going to be covering this mission for the next 20 years. <laughs> you know, it's been one week and there's been so much, you know, the data is really going to start rolling now. And I think today, if, if NASA hasn't yet, but it will soon release, you know, Webb's view of Jupiter, what, you know, mm. the planet, um, what that planet looks like in infrared. So it's really exciting to me that this is, that JWST is in some ways a very all-purpose telescope, right? It can observe pretty much everything between Mars and, you know, the the uh, farthest edges and reaches okay. of the universe. So I think what's really exciting to me is, you know, when the concept of web was just coming together in the late 80s, early 90s, um, we still lived in a world where our planets were the only planets that we knew of, right? The first exoplanet around a sun-like star was discovered in 1995. And so, the, some of the instrumentation on web, some of the um, capabilities were added on later, like the you know the exoplanet spectrum that we saw this week. Web wasn't initially designed to um, study exoplanets, but you know things changed. Mm -hmm. More exoplanets were discovered. Now we know of more than thousands. So the mission had to change to meet that new reality. So what I'm most looking forward to is seeing what Webb shows us and how that's going to influence the designs of other uh, big telescopes that are currently, people are currently thinking about. What will they have to add because Webb showed them something that they didn't expect? Mm, that's a good answer. Also, uh, Marina, just double checking, Hubble, Hubble keeps going too, right? I mean, it's not like they're shutting Hubble down. It's been, it'll just transform, probably be a little easier to get time on Hubble going forward. Yeah, I've talked to some uh, people who think that this is kind of Webb's launch and it's, you know, the fact that it's working and working beautifully is kind of a relief for Hubble because Hubble can observe a little bit in the infrared and for so many years people who wanted to do infrared astronomy, you know, used up all of Hubble's time for that. Hmm. Now Hubble can kind of relax and just bask in that visible and ultraviolet light, <laughs> those other wavelengths that it was designed to um, function is, you know, it's, it's a 32 year old telescope. It's, it's, you know, astronauts did go up and spruce it up and, and fix it a little bit, but it is, it's getting older, but it's still out there. It's still kicking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's bring in another call. Uh, Swami in Mountain View. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, my question is about the, the, 
the spectrum that we saw from the first release of the images um, and how Webb can detect uh, you know, planets, exoplanets orbiting other stars and how sensitive the instruments need to be to do that. I mean, is there a size of the planet that you can detect, mm-hmm. say, by observing the change in the spectrum when it's transiting the star? Mm-hmm. Or how does it work, actually? Yeah. Um, is there a, like, you know, Great question. Can detect Jupiter-sized planets or, like, Earth-sized planets or, you know, Venus-sized planets, which is quite small? Yeah. Tom Green? Great right. Question, so... Uh, that is a great question. So this spectrum shows uh, what's known as sort of a hot Jupiter. So it's a very hot planet. It's uh, about, uh, it's between the mass of Saturn and Jupiter. It's about the size of Jupiter. These are the sort of planets that uh, Hubble can characterize well. We knew from Hubble that uh, there was water and we see that in this spectrum. Webb will be able to go down to smaller planets, which is gonna be really exciting. Uh, there's this whole, uh, category of planets, a whole population in the galaxy, unlike anything in our solar system. These are planets that are bigger than Earth and smaller than Neptune or Uranus. And we're going to be looking at a lot of these in the first year of Webb. And uh, I've got a few in the program that I'm leading, and we'll uh, and we'll be able to understand what chemicals are there, uh, maybe why they formed in other solar systems, why we don't have them. And we will be able to see some planets down to Earth size too. Uh, the trick is, is because uh, the way we uh, observe them, they have to, it, we have to observe the whole planet and star system. We look uh, when there's no planet there, and then when the planet's in front of the star. So that helps when we look at small stars. So we we can see small planets around small stars that are nearby, and we do have some of those. Yeah. Um, Marsha, a quick silly one for you. Joe writes in to ask, can you take a picture of the Webb telescope from Hubble? Oh, I don't <laughs> actually know that you could do that. I do know that people have gotten uh, pictures of Webb from ground-based telescopes. They um, People tracked it on the way out, so... Um, I can't think of a reason why you couldn't point at Webb with Hubble, but I, uh, I, I've not heard anyone want to actually do it. <laughs> well, Joe, somewhere in the Bay Area is, is the first, apparently. Um, thank you all so much. We've been talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, we've been joined by Marina Corrin, staff writer for The Atlantic, who writes about space. Thank you, Marina. Tom Green, an astrophysicist at the Space Science and Astrobiology Division at NASA Ames, who worked on the NIRCAM and MIRI instruments of the James Webb. And Marsha Riki, who's been so kind to join us uh, multiple times now. She's a Regents Professor of Astronomy and an astronomer at the Seward Observatory at the University of Arizona and Principal Investigator on the James Webb Space Telescope. Thank you from me. And I want to thank you also uh, on behalf of our listeners and commenters. Celeste writes, yes, I think the new telescope that sees stars is fascinating. and The images are gorgeous. Happy to be alive to see new technology. Can't wait to see more. Another listener writes, you nailed it at the beginning of the show with the sentence about all of this being here all along. We just had to build a camera to see it. This, in a nutshell, is what hope is. It's seeing what's needed and then finding a way to make it a reality. We should all remember this and not give up trying to save our own planet. Thank you to these lovely scientists for showing us what's possible. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another Hour Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera, 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.